This weekend, I want to finish up our conversation about the Jewish fall feasts. In Leviticus 23, God tells Israel to put seven events on their annual calendar, and he said that everyone has to participate. Gather everyone and celebrate what I have done for you. So everybody showed up. Everyone expressed their praise. Look how God delivered us from Egypt. Look how God has brought a bountiful harvest this season or whatever it is, all kinds of things that they would celebrate. Now, Israel didn't realize this, but the seven feasts of the Lord are a prophetic timeline of God's redemptive plan for salvation. The spring feasts point to what God already did in and through Jesus the first time Jesus came, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The fall feasts prophetically point to what will go down when Jesus comes back a second time, what the Bible refers to as the last days or the time of the end. We typically refer to the second coming of Jesus as the end times, the season in history when God wraps everything up, he deals with evil and finishes what he started. The Feast of Tabernacles is the seventh and final feast of the Lord. And that's what I want to focus on this weekend. By the way, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles starts at sundown this evening, tonight. Isn't that cool? Yes. Feast of Tabernacles. And since we've also been studying through the prophets of the Old Testament, I want to do a quick shout out to the prophet Habakkuk. Okay? Because Habakkuk really struggled with how long it was taking for God to wrap things up, to deal with all the evil in his day like God promised he would. Habakkuk was starting to lose faith that God even cared. God, are you here? Are you around? Do you hear us? Did you just go away? In the very first chapter, like the first thing he says, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2, how long? Oh, Lord, have I called for help? And you do not hear. And I think that's where a lot of people are today. Is Jesus really going to come back? Like, how long have we been waiting? And there are people who are bitterly leaving the faith. Because like Habakkuk, they're frustrated. They're disillusioned. They're weary in the waiting which the apostle Peter said would happen. Second Peter chapter three, Peter says in the last days, scoffers are going to come and they're going to mock the truth and they're going to follow their own desires. They are going to say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? Nothing's changed. Jesus ain't coming back. I mean, Peter called it. He's looking ahead. He's prophesying. This is what's going to happen in the end times. He calls it. And the longer people have to wait for Jesus to return, the less confident they'll be that he even will return. And people are just going to give up on God altogether. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing all around us. Here's the challenge I want to put forth to Soma Church this morning. Fight the good fight of faith with confidence that God will finish what he started. Because he will. He will be faithful to the end. That's this whole sermon in one sentence and the title for this message. 
Fight the good fight of faith with confidence that God will finish what he started. Because he is faithful to the end. Not long before he dies, Paul writes a final letter to one of his disciples, Timothy. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me, will award to me on that day, on the day of his return. And the prize isn't just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. And he goes on in verse 12, and he he tells Timothy, now you fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession before many witnesses. The apostle Paul saw the return of Jesus as a finish line. And he lived his life with a vision of himself finishing the race, running through that ribbon. Paul was confident that there was an end to the race and that there was a reward, not only for him, but for all who have had vision and have longed for his appearing. I want you to see how God ends up encouraging Habakkuk. This is Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 2. It says that the Lord answered Habakkuk and said, Write down the vision and inscribe it clearly on tablets, so that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hurries toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it delays... Wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay long. Then it goes on in verse 4, and it says, Behold the proud. His soul, their soul, is not right within them. But the righteous one will live by his faith. And then God goes on to affirm the future appointed time of Israel's captivity to Babylon. But I think that any time we see the words appointed time in the Bible, we have to wonder, may this also be connected to the seven feasts of the Lord? Because it's the same Hebrew word. Moed, appointed time, also translates feast. Personally, I do think that what we see here is what we would call a dual prophecy. I think that what God says to Habakkuk also points ahead to the very end to the day of the Lord, when God finishes what he started, when the race is completely over and the righteous who live by faith, who live with a vision of the finish line, break through that ribbon and receive their reward. Amen. Which to me is what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. Agriculturally, The Feast of Tabernacles marked the end of the harvest season. Like, it's done. It's over. All the produce from the fields and from the orchards, from the vineyards, all the granaries, they're overflowing. The threshing floors, the the wine presses, the olive presses, everything's full to capacity. All the weeks, all the months of work are over, and now it's time to enjoy the reward. Now it's time to enjoy the fruit of their labor. 
which is why Tabernacles is also called the Feast of Ingathering. Spiritually, Tabernacles was the finish line of the seven feasts. Spiritually, the people had worked just as hard all year to stay faithful to God. And of course, nobody's perfect, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But thanks to the atoning work of the high priest who went into the most holy place with the blood of bulls and goats just five days earlier on the day of atonement. We talked about that last week. You can go back and watch and listen. Israel was able to cross that finish line forgiven for another year. (laughs) And all of this prophetically pointed to the gospel. Thanks to Jesus Christ, our high priest, who went into the most holy place in the heavenly tabernacle with his own blood for the forgiveness of our sin, right? Those who have believed his message, they've lived their life fighting the good fight of faith. They've faithfully shared the gospel. And remember, we talked about bringing in the sheaves. They've brought people to the Lord. Those people, they will cross the finish line of faith. Forgiven. They, we, will enter into eternal life. Amen. And like Paul said, a prize awaits. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to us on the day of his return. Okay, so let me say it again. The Feast of Tabernacles was the finish line. Agriculturally, Spiritually, which is why the Feast of Tabernacles was the most festive feast of the year. Their favorite one. The ancient rabbis would just call it the holiday or the feast. They're referring to, if you ever hear any of them say, oh, the feast, they're talking about that one. There's seven of them. But if they just say the feast, they're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. I want you to take a look up at the screen If you've been here for these teachings over the last few weeks, then you've probably wondered why Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles are bolded and underlined. That's because these three feasts are called pilgrimage feasts. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, God says that three times a year, the men were to appear before the Lord and to worship him with their tithes and their offerings. And he says, you better not come empty-handed. So they knew to come, and they knew to bring the fruits of their labor. Jesus was faithful to keep all of the feasts. He was faithful to keep the pilgrimage feasts. You guys remember when Jesus was 12 years old, and his parents accidentally left him in Jerusalem? They found him teaching in the synagogues, right? Well, it says in Luke chapter 2 that his family had made the pilgrimage from Galilee for Passover. In John chapter 7, it talks about how they were going to go up to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, but everybody was trying to kill Jesus. He said, you know, I think I'll hang back. But in the end, it says that he ended up going in secret because he wasn't going to miss a feast, especially a pilgrimage feast. Now, I want you guys to see this. The pilgrimage feasts are a picture of the journey of salvation. Passover speaks to, points to the justification that we've received through.
the work of Jesus on the cross. Pentecost points to sanctification because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He sets us apart. He helps us to become that new person in Christ Jesus. He is our comforter, our helper, our counselor, guides us to the truth. He convicts us of sin. Tabernacles is about another churchy word that we hear that maybe we don't know what it means. But that's glorification. One of these days we will spend eternity with Jesus in glory. We will be glorified. We will walk in glorification. That's the final reward for those who are faithful. (laughs) We could go all day long on this kind of stuff. There is just deep and rich with all kinds of details. I wish we had more time. We don't. Let me show you this. The Jewish people call the Feast of Tabernacles Sukkot, which is actually the plural form of Sukkah, which is the Hebrew word for tabernacle. But it actually translates temporary shelter. Now, this is important, all right? So I want you guys to pay attention. One of the main things that God instructed the people of Israel to do During Sukkot, during the Feast of Tabernacles, Leviticus 23, verse 42, for seven days, you must live outside in little shelters. All native-born Israelites must live in shelters. This will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. To this day, During Sukkot, Jewish people build little shelters, (laughs) little sukkahs out in their yard, on their balcony, on their patios, wherever it is they could put them. And these sukkahs would have at least three walls. They were usually made to where you could see through them. You could gaze at the stars if you wanted to. They were typically made very colorful, decorated with harvest fruits and vegetables, which makes sense. It was the feast of the ingathering. People would usually just eat their meals out in their sukkahs. But hardcore people will actually sleep in their sukkahs. Okay, so what's all this about? What does all this mean? What does all this point to? Well, remember what sukkah means? It's a temporary dwelling place. Historically, God wanted Israel to remember how he took care of them during their temporary time out in the wilderness for 40 years. He had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, but their sin caused them to wander in the desert 40 years. And yet, God didn't leave them alone. God was there. God cared. And he provided for them. And he protected them. Prophetically, God wants to remind us that our time on this earth is temporary. Adam and Eve, they sinned. They messed it up for all of us. They made this a very difficult world to live in. And how many of you know it's getting more and more and more difficult to live in this world? But just like Israel, we've been promised a better life. Eternal life. And God's going to take care of us. In the meantime, I think that the temporary is meant to remind us of the eternal. Let me say it this way. 
The temporary, it makes us long for the eternal. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, anybody that's been camping knows that. <laughs> I mean, I love camping, but I hate camping. I do. Sleeping out in there, one night in a tent, and I am longing for the appearance of my own bed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Melissa and I, when we first got married, before we had kids, we went on a hiking trip. Five days up in the Beartooth Mountains of Montana. And uh, we didn't have any gear. We were broke, and we didn't, couldn't afford any gear. So we got everybody's leftovers. Okay, They gave us leftover old um, backpacks and tents. And I'm pretty sure the tent we got was from the Civil War. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was old. And so at nights, we had sleeping, even our sleeping bags, if I remember right, were old and used and thin, and they'd been slept in a thousand times. You know, I think they were slept in by elephants because they were like paper thin. You know what I'm saying? So Melissa and I, we started out with two sleeping bags, but we ended up in one sleeping bag as close as we could possibly get, like trying to shift over the rocks that were hurting our backs. It was awful, and it was freezing, and every now and then you'd hear, <laughs> There's bears outside of a tent. You know what I'm saying? So at night, the one thing that you had to do if you wanted to survive the night is you had to set your mind on things at home. Which is exactly what the Apostle Paul says that we've got to do during our temporary time on this earth. He says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. The Feast of Tabernacles is meant to remind us that our temporary time here will come to an end and we will dwell. We will tabernacle with God for eternity. Amen? Yeah. Okay, so let's review. The seven feasts are a prophetic timeline of God's redemptive plan of salvation. The spring feasts have happened. They have been fulfilled. Jesus' is first coming. The fall feasts will happen. Jesus will fulfill those at his second coming. Okay. Everybody affirm he will come again, right? Now we don't know exactly how and when everything is going to go down, but we do know that the feast of tabernacles is the finish line. Okay. The feast of tabernacles prophetically points to the end of this age when all things are reconciled when all things are made right, and those who have believed and received Jesus will dwell forever with God in paradise. No more sorrow. No more tears. No more anxiety. No more fear. Just love and joy and peace. Just all-out perfection. Amen. I mean, that's exciting, right? And we get to look forward to that. That's our reward. That's the prize. Can we get a clap and a shout in this place? There is a reward at the other end of this thing, people. You fight the good fight of faith, you're going to get crowned with righteousness. Amen. Now, I want to talk about something that I believe is important concerning the end times. And I don't think I'd be a very good pastor to you and for you if I didn't. How many of you have ever ran a race? Raise your hand. 
could be a short race, short distance race, long distance race, really doesn't matter. Either scenario, isn't it true that the closer you get to that finish line, the harder it gets? Like the last portion of any race. I used to run the 800. I used to run the mile. There was a season I ran the two mile. And I can tell you that the last lap of the mile or the two mile is brutal because it's hard. Everything within you wants to just stop and walk off the track. I think I told the story one time of in the cross country race. I'm going, I'm trying to catch this one guy. It was my goal to catch that one guy. That was my vision to catch this one guy. And I'm working towards him. All of a sudden I see him just stop and walk off the, walk off the trail into the woods. I don't know if anybody ever found him. You know, he may be dead out there as far as we know. I'm just saying. We know what it's like to run. And the closer you get to the finish line, the harder it gets. I want you to listen to me. There is a Feast of Tabernacles coming to those who are faithful to God. Okay? There is a finish line waiting for those who are running the race in such a way as to win. But I also want to remind you that there is a final lap before we get to that finish line. And that final lap is called the tribulation. Now, before you start getting too theological on me, I want you to just listen. The tribulation is the final seven years of history before Jesus comes back with his bride, sets up his kingdom upon this earth. It's called the tribulation because it's going to be a terrible seven years, especially the last three and a half years. The Bible calls that the great tribulation and says it's going to be the worst time the world has ever seen. According to Daniel chapter 9, Matthew chapter 24, this seven years will have a very specific, recognizable beginning, middle, and end. A lot of people think that the rapture of the church is what kicks off the seven-year tribulation. You may be here and you're like, what's that? I'm new to this whole church thing. What's, what's the rapture? Well, the rapture of the church is an event that happens at some point in the end times. Jesus comes down from heaven and those who belong to him at that time will be removed from the earth, taken to a place that he has prepared for us in advance. Jesus talks about that in John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4. The apostle Paul talks about it. Most Christians believe in the rapture. But there are varying opinions, different opinions, debates on when and how the rapture is going to happen. Some people believe in what we call a pre-tribulation, pre-trib rapture, that God will remove believers sometime before the seven-year tribulation begins so that nobody will have to go through the tribulation. Some people believe in a mid-trib, mid-tribulation rapture where God will remove believers at the three-and-a-half-year mark, right there in the middle of the seven-year tribulation so that they won't have to experience the great tribulation. And then there is a post-trib view, post-tribulation. Believers will go all the way through, through all seven years of the tribulation, and those who are alive at the end will be caught up in the air with Jesus and then come right back down with Jesus to set up his kingdom on the earth. Well, Pastor Tony, which one is it? <laughs> <laughs> Amen. 
Let's circle back around to that. Can we do that? All right. But a lot of people who believe in a pre-trib rapture theology think that the rapture of the church is what kicks off that seven-year tribulation. But that's not right. That's not what the Bible teaches. Daniel chapter 9 says, And he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And on the wing of the temple will come the abomination that causes desolation until the decreed destruction is poured out upon him. Now, I get that that's a lot of words, may even be a little confusing. What this is saying is that a man of peace is going to show up and make some sort of covenant with Israel for seven years. A lot of pastors, a lot of Bible scholars believe that this will be some sort of peace treaty because of how the Apostle Paul says, while people, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. I could be wrong, but I personally believe that this covenant will have something to do with the rebuilding of the Jewish temple, the third temple, because it says that he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, Israel ain't going to offer anything without a temple. They're not going to make any sacrifices without a temple. Now, we know they don't need to make sacrifices anyway. Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice, right? But they haven't received Jesus as their Messiah. And so for a long time, they haven't had a temple. So they've been trying to figure out ways to work for their atonement, ways to work for the forgiveness of their sin. They're eager to get back to killing an animal and shedding blood for the forgiveness of their sins. They don't understand. Jesus already did that. He was the lamb that was worthy and he was slain, but they don't understand that. Before they can make sacrifices, there has to be a third temple. Whatever the covenant with Israel is, that's what starts the clock on the final seven years, not the rapture of the church. And at exactly the halfway point, at the three and a half year mark, smack in the middle, of the tribulation, this man will go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and he will do something despicable. Daniel chapter 9 says, In the middle of the week, in the middle of that seven years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the temple he will come, the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 24. When you see standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation described by the prophet Daniel. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You better get out of there. It's about to get crazy is what Jesus was saying. Again, this man of peace does something very obvious, very evil, something blasphemous. The apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that this person will seat himself in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, standing in the temple, proclaiming yourself as God definitely qualifies as an abomination, right? Paul said this event will reveal this man of peace to be the man of lawlessness, otherwise known as the Antichrist. And that this event will be a time marker for the day of the Lord. Jesus said the same thing. When the Antichrist goes in the temple, 
blasphemes God, the world will be exactly three and a half years away from the finish line. Three and a half years away from the day of the Lord. And again, that three and a half years is the great tribulation, and it's going to be terrible. Now, why am I bringing this up? Last week, I mentioned the red heifers that have been found. You can go back and listen to that message on the Day of Atonement to understand exactly what I'm talking about. But these are animals that are required for Jewish people to start their sacrifices again. Within the next year or so, the Jewish priests will determine if those red heifers are pure enough to sacrifice. If so, the only thing left they're going to need is a temple. Now, I'm just thinking out loud here. But where are they going to put that temple? Their goal is to put the temple on the Temple Mount, where the Islamic Dome of the Rock currently sits. Now, again, I'm not an expert on all this, but from what I understand, any attempt to build a Jewish temple in place of or anywhere near the Dome of the Rock could cause an all-out war. Unless there's some sort of covenant, some sort of treaty that is made, one that offers a peaceful solution, which is exactly what the prophet Daniel said was going to happen. And he said that this would kick off the seven-year tribulation. Guys, we could be just a few short years away from all of this. Well, Pastor Tony, it doesn't matter because Jesus is coming back. We're going to be raptured on out of here. <laughs> you know what? I hope and pray that he does. But we can't say for sure that's how it's going to go down. It's all future events. Brilliant Bible scholars disagree on how all this is going to play out. I'm certainly not going to try to be some sort of expert on the topic. And even if Jesus does rapture his church out before the tribulation, in Matthew 24, Jesus said that the times leading up to all that are going to be tough. He said it will be like birth pains. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Hopefully, we won't be here for the tribulation. Hopefully, there will be a pre-trib rapture. But at the very least, I believe that we will see the birth pains. I believe that we will see the great falling away, the great apostasy. I believe we are seeing the great falling away. But what if, what if there is no pre-trib rapture? Then that means that we will watch live on your social media of choice a man of peace make some sort of covenant with Israel. We will watch a third temple be built We will see the Jewish priests reinstate sacrifices 
in that temple again. And it will be blasted all over YouTube. The man of peace at the three and a half year mark, revealing himself to be a man of lawlessness by going into that Jewish temple and proclaiming himself to be God. And then it's going to get really bad. And we'll see all that too. Well, Pastor Tony, what are you saying? You, you, you scared? I was like, no, I ain't scared. That's not the point at all. I'm just concerned that so many Christians, all they know is get saved, wait for the rapture. Get saved, wait for the rapture. But what if that's not how it goes down? That final lap, that seven-year tribulation is going to be a shock to a lot of people. And my guess is that we would see some of our own family and friends just stop and walk off the track. And I do personally lean toward a pre-trib rapture. My theology leans towards a pre-trib rapture. But I'm not putting my faith and my hope in my end times theology. I'm putting my faith and hope in Jesus Christ and daily leaning on his grace and his mercy because it's his grace and his mercy that would save me from the tribulation. And it's his grace and mercy that will save me through the tribulation. I can't reiterate enough that there's no way to know how the end times will play out, when this will go down, how that's going to happen. But Peter and Paul and even Jesus, they all say the same thing. You can know the season. You're not in the dark on this. Watch and pray. Multiple times, the apostle Paul says, stay on alert. Amen. Let me end with this. You know, I think some Christians, they don't even know that they're running a race. They don't even realize this is a race. They have no idea what they've gotten themselves into. Or maybe they do, but they just don't realize there is a final lap that will require them to fight the good fight of faith with full confidence that he will be faithful to the end, that he will return. I mean, maybe you're here and you didn't know. You didn't know about any of this. Or maybe you are someone that has leaned more on your end times theology than you have the grace and the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or maybe in your own heart, you're where Habakkuk was and where many people are today. You're saying, where are you, God? Are you coming back or not? What's the deal? Are you good or not? Are you even real? And you're weary of the waiting. <laughs> like you're just one spiritual leg cramp away from walking off the track. And giving up. What I'm trying to do this weekend is I am trying to give you vision. Habakkuk said, are you coming back or not? What's the deal? When will this evil be taken care of? You said that you were coming. You said you would deal this. Is this going to happen or not? And God says, write down the vision. 
and inscribe it clearly on tablets so the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. The finish line is coming. Can I get an amen? There is an appointed time for the end, a final feast of tabernacles, and we will reap our reward. We will see the fruits of our labor. It says, it hurries towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it delays, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay long. Listen, guys. We can trust the Lord. We can trust him. He will be faithful to the end. Amen. And let's remember the last part of this. Verse four. Behold the proud. Their soul is not right within them. But the righteous one will live by his faith. I love that. In the meantime, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with everything within us, we fight the good fight of faith with full confidence that he will be faithful to finish what he started. Amen.